Bet365 sponsors our podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. And with over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Welcome to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. This is the podcast where Tom Warville and Michael Cox and myself, Ali Maxwell, pick a topic each week, which could be related to tactics. It could be related to football analytics. It could be a footballing trend that has tickled our fancy. Today, we're taking a look at squads and squad depth, specifically zooming in on the Premier League. We are going to look at every single Premier League squad and assess it and dissect it and see what these guys think about it. Tom Warville is the man who insisted that we take a deeper look at squad depth. Tom, why is it that you find this topic and diving into this subject so interesting? Yes, yeah, so Ali, I guess my, my interest in squads and squad depth and ages probably from, I don't know when, I guess when I was younger, a lot younger playing football manager and always intrigued on, on trying to play like younger sides or um, also doing some work previously at, at Opta and we did some some work on kind of average ages across leagues and I've always kind of been interested in the different approaches that teams take to to build their squads and it doesn't seem like there's a, a silver bullet way of if you build your squad like this you, you're definitely going to win and I just really like the outliers so I remember doing a piece of work um, looking at like I said the average age of squads across Europe and Kievo in Serie A were just consistently the oldest team every single season <laughs> like to the point where I think they, they'd have players who would retire and they replace them with another 34 year old centre back um, and I just thought that was the, just the completely wrong way to build a squad uh, and I just thought there's, there's surely other slightly more innovative approaches to you know dig into um, and that was kind of the basis for, for this article really. It's funny you say that about Kievo Tom because I remember the first year they got promoted to Serie A back in I think 2001-2002 they did really well their first ever season and they finished fifth or sixth in the league but maybe the major storyline that they had that year was they had a player called Eriberto on the right flank. And midway through the campaign, it turned out his name wasn't Eriberto, it was Luciano. And he had basically used a, f- a false passport um, to get a contract. And he was actually seven years older than initially pe- appeared. So maybe they should have carried on that particular policy and just given all their players false passports to trick you. <laughs> Absolutely magnificent start to the pod already. Michael bringing some insanely niche knowledge to proceedings. That's exactly what we're after. Uh, Michael, uh, how into looking at squads and their depth are you? It feels like the start of the season is as good a time as ever just to get a feel for how teams are shaping up ahead of the campaign. Yeah, I really like these these graphics that Tom's produced for the site. It just gives a really great overview of... Well, a few different things, really. The age of the squad, how strong they are in various positions, um, and also how long the players have been at the club. Um, and, in fact, the, the starting eleven as well, which is a nice touch. So, yeah, um, it, it's one of those things that is maybe difficult to summarise because just an average age for the squad or even for the first eleven, I think, could be misleading sometimes. But, uh, yeah, I think it's a good example of uh, when you have someone like Tom who can do uh, data stuff, but more specifically, the kind of graphical side of things. Um, it can really tell an interesting picture. And we're going to find out certainly over the course of the pod that there are many ways to skin a cat when it comes to squad building at Premier League level. Tom, you mentioned that this has been an interest of yours for some time. Uh, Can you share anything obvious that's changed uh, in terms of general squad numbers and depth uh, sort of compared to historical data that you've looked at? Yeah, so I actually started 
compiling this data during the famed lockdown period back in March. And I did a piece looking at, uh, we had a, a series called Rebooted, where essentially we, we started reporting on the 98-99 Premier League seasons if it was happening uh, in kind of the current day. And I did a piece on Fergus United that year and kind of looking at his squad and the players that we used and rightly got paddled in the comments because I said Roy Keane kind of was in the rotation. Turns out he wasn't in the rotation, he done his knee in but <laughs> over the that kind of like piece i did a, a graphic which looked at essentially the trend of how much if you're an average player if you're just a player in a squad in the premier league in 92 93 how much are you expected to play minutes wise wise versus now and it's it's dropped off massively so back in kind of right at the start of football in 92 93 um Team players would play around 47% of minutes that were when on offer. And if you go down to 1920, you're essentially playing about 37%. So players back then, if you were on a Premier League squad, you're just, you're just likely on the hook to play so much more football than you are now. And that's probably born out of just there's more competitions, the, the game is more intense, there's so much that's happened in, in terms of just like the, the physical ceiling, the technical ceiling, the tactical ceiling is just raised so high now in, in, in 2020 that players um, just don't have it in them to, to play as many minutes as they used to. Goalkeepers are the obvious outlier here because although the game's changed in front of them, the, the kind of physical stuff that they're asked to do maybe means that they can always play a few more games in their outfield counterparts. One of the big things that stood out reading your piece uh, and the amazing charts that you produced for each team was the shaded area that denotes peak age, which uh, in the article is a five-year spell between the age of 24 and 29. Happy to say that I'm still very much at peak age, but I'm not actually sure uh, whether that is true for podcasting. Uh, can I ask how that has been measured by yourself and another sort of uh, analytics gurus. I, I kind of imagine it's something that differs for each position. So how did you go about deciding what is peak age? Because I'm sure you'll be referencing that phrase a, a few times during the pod. Yeah, I think that this is one that usually is something that's debated quite a lot of like whether that banding is correct. And like you say, Ali, does it kind of change across different positions? But essentially, the way I looked at it, this was quite a while ago now, was um, looking at minutes played across the different positions, what are the ages that get most minutes on the field in, in a given season? And it turns out between the ages of, of 24 and 29 is when where most of the ages of players kind of fall between. And so that we, we kind of expect is when players are at their peak in terms of, again, fitness, they, they have kind of the, the right melding of being able to play at the highest level physically. They have the, the tactical know-how and technically they're at their, their peak as well. But yeah, I think it does does change per, per position and it's something that's that's on a, an ever-growing to-do list to try to tackle on the site in the near future of, you know, how do we actually go about calculating this and kind of why also peak age and the calculation of it is very much, it only really works kind of when you're so zoomed out at a kind of general overview. I think Iron Robin and Frank Ribery are perfect examples of where the peak age ruling doesn't really apply considering they were playing at the highest level in their kind of late 30s. And Zlatan Ibrahimovic as well, he's still performing, you know, he's tearing apart Shamrock Rovers at the age of 38 years old. So that, that shows you everything you need to know about just, you know, for some players, peak age doesn't really seem to apply. And Michael, have you ever thought about what peak age might be for a football writer, especially one focusing on tactics? Is that something that you're concerned about or is that something that you're still looking forward to, to hitting? No, I dread to think, to be honest. No, I try try to keep that at the back of my mind, to be honest. Uh, yeah, these these 17-year-olds coming through have just got so many dimensions to their game. So, no, let's move on. OK, let's touch on a few different types of approach in the Premier League. We will start arbitrarily with our champions, Liverpool Football Club. Michael, they get a lot of credit for squad building specifically over the last three to five years for putting together this squad to peak at in the last year or two uh, and pick up a Champions League trophy, a Premier League trophy and what comes next, we're not quite sure. Uh, what stands out when you look at Liverpool's squad and squad depth? I think the interesting thing for me is the fact that the three forwards, Salah, Mane and Firmino are all 28. That's obviously not an issue at the moment. I think they're all roughly in their peak years. But I think a side like Liverpool, a club like Liverpool, I should say, who are so focused on getting the, the most out of the transfer market. And I think we'd all agree they've done a really good job at that in the last few years. You think they probably won't want to replace them in one go. You think they probably won't want to keep them really past the ages of 30, 31, where they probably won't be able to get any transfer or a big transfer fee for them. So you wonder really how Klopp will try and evolve 
that you know that situation up front obviously they brought in Minamino who's 25 I think there's a possibility he can play the Firmino role there's a possibility he can be played in a, a front four a slightly different system but yeah that's the thing that stands out to me the fact that those three forwards are all near enough the same age Tom I can imagine this squad pleases you as someone interested in squad building it, it looks to me like a, a classic two players for every position and in pretty good shape to cope with uh, with a couple of injuries to the first team yeah and I I definitely agree with that and I think that it's just built around this this idea ever since Jurgen Klopp's joined of just only signing players of a, of a given age um, and we kind of looked into that upon the signing of um, Thiago from, from Bayern and um, it's only Thiago and, and Ragnar Klavan back in 1617 who are the only signings they've made who are over 26 years old so that kind of makes Virgil van Dijk and Jun Shakiri also the kind of elder statesman who, who joined when they were 26 years old and I just think that's that's the best way to build a squad where you're kind of like buying players at their peak they're able to add value now they're able to play now there's not like a long bedding in period or you've, you've not got to wait a few years and to get experience they're, they're very much coming to win now and you're going to get the best years out of them another title for Liverpool Tom they get the uh, zonal marking squad building award as well early on in the season look that there aren't many players outside or above rather that peak age bracket uh, Henderson at 30 just past it but still in in obviously uh, in very good nick I think it's fair to say uh, and then Adrian the backup goalkeeper who's 33 and then James Milner is a huge outlier at, at 34 but uh, as they always say probably the fittest man in the in the squad he, he's certainly someone that laughs in the face uh, of your peak age shaded area <laughs> yeah absolutely I think Milner is is one case of there are certain players you can have on teams who like you can break that kind of age restriction you might have and then a lot of teams you know don't maybe do it as well as Liverpool where they try and mix youth experience and, and players in their peak quite as well but I think it's, it's it's nice for certain teams to have a player like Milner who may be not as expensive as other players who are in their their peak there's less of a worry that he's gonna you know demand a move to a better club or you know they need to worry about a sell-on fee he's just a really really steady performer and even at the age of 34 is he now um I yeah I just think that, like he's a he's a really nice piece and and um if anything it makes that that graphic that make of Liverpool squad that that little bit sweeter. There's quite a lot going on uh, in the Leeds United section uh, of your piece. Plenty of interesting things about this Leeds United side and the squad as well. One of them being a very low average age. Tom, talk me through what stands out uh, with Leeds United. Yeah, so with Leeds, we've uh, and on these graphics, we've kind of labelled after chatting to the, the one of the writers, the athletic writers who kind of covers each team. After chatting to Phil Hay, this was kind of the the best eleven they went for. Um, and a lot of the players, maybe apart from Meslier and Goal and Jack Harrison, there's a ton of players that that Leeds have, like Oliver Casey, Leif Davis, Robbie Gotts, Jamie Shackleton, uh, Ian Pervader, and a few others, where they're in the squad, but they're all kind of below, you know, 21 and younger. A lot of Leeds' uh, average age there is obviously driven by players who are only really on the fringes, likely to play in the cup more, maybe get the odd substitute appearance. Yeah, Bielsa just builds his squad so differently to, to everyone else. And Leeds have had a really interesting window where they've actually seemingly focused more on signing academy talent than actually bringing in proper names who can perform now in the league, apart from Robin Koch and, uh, and Rodrigo. Well, he just has such a different way of, of looking at the transfer market. And I think for, for some Leeds fans, certainly over the last two seasons when they're in the championship, I noticed that at times, it can cause uh, a bit of uh, a bit of concern amongst the fan base. I mean, there was a, a long period where they really just had two dependable centre backs, and then Gaetano Berardi as the as the the next option off the bench. But he also just he really has an absolute flagrant disregard for a player's natural position and where a player has to play. Like, you know, you, you put Dallas in the fullback section there, which is understandable because I dare say most of his minutes come at left back, but, but he's the Swiss army knife and he's not the only one. I mean, he, I can think of, uh, probably four or five different positions that he's played over the last year or two. Uh, Ailing, who's the right back, has also played centre back and, and left back. 
it, it's it's pretty remarkable the way that he approaches things. And even at the top end of the pitch, you sometimes have guys that you might think are a striker, for example, like Tyler Roberts playing in an advanced eight role. It's uh, it, it's it's quite the roller coaster following Leeds United under under Bielsa, I must say. And and as you wrote in the piece, you don't always understand exactly how it works, but it's real the Bielsa effect. And look, there's a lot of talk about burnout and if and when this lead side might suffer burnout and whether the 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 thin nature of the squad makes it more likely but as far as we've seen so far that hasn't happened and, and long may that continue uh, michael let's go to arsenal next uh, what stands out to you about their squad it looks pretty bloated if you ask me yeah there's a lot of players there i mean i think they've um in certain positions particularly center back i think it must be said they've kind of taken a chance on various players and They've got seven centre-backs there at the moment who could conceivably uh, be regulars at some point this season. I think the interesting thing that stands out from uh, the Arsenal graphic is that they've got three players in their first eleven who came to the club quite old. I mean, particularly David Luiz and Willian, but also Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang came when he was 28. You know, there doesn't seem to be that much focus uh, at Arsenal at the moment in terms of getting in young players to kind of sell them on and get a good transfer fee for them. Certainly, Willian and David Luiz, you don't expect them to get anything for them. But yeah, I think the squad's actually pretty good, probably as good as it's been for a few years. Arsenal at times have had a very good starting eleven, but nothing much outside that. And I think the positive thing for Arsenal as well is that they have got some really promising young players. I mean, I think uh, Bakayo Saka is just a sensationally good player in various positions. Martinelli as well I know he's out I think until the new year but when he started last year he was really excellent and some other players like Reese Nelson and Eddie Nketiah and I think Arteta is the kind of manager who will want to work with young players and bring them on and improve them and make them into the type of player that he wants them to be. I agree with a lot of what Coxie said there. I think the only thing I, I maybe slightly disagree with is that there are some players they've bought in recently who they might be able to sell on, maybe not for a, a huge profit, but they've at least kind of retained their value. Maybe I'm, I'm focusing too much on just one example, but I think Lucas Torreira is kind of rumoured to go back to Serie A this year. And, and he's one player which highlights for Arsenal, someone who maybe was was one of the, the lesser riskier signings, if we put it that way, who they've signed in recent seasons. Um, he's not lost a ton of value. He's still only... 24 years old and he, you know he's not quite worked out in the Premier League but they might make a, a small tidy profit on him same with Matteo Ganduzzi as well who Ganduzzi's the sort of player who is to me a bit of a, a jack of all trades master of none he's he's you know he's not the most cool-headed of players he's definitely not a goal scorer but I think under the surface he's a he's a pretty good progressor of the ball and, and it's just a shame that it seems that to Arteta he's, he's slightly unfavoured I think Arsenal signed from Lorient for, for 12 million pounds and again if they can find a, a club to to take him off their hands they're going to make a, a relatively tidy profit on him as well still only 21 of course uh, it, it's a young side Arsenal Leeds United as well as mentioned a, a very young squad let's talk about some of the oldest sides in the Premier League uh, Burnley and Crystal Palace Tom especially stand out in this regard yeah I, I really like this Burnley side mainly because they're just so old like there's no regard from, <laughs> from Sean Dyche of just just like what are we you know what are we thinking two or three years down the line like it just very much feels like he's here to use up the best of these got from these players and like I feel that the job that Burnley have on their hands to kind of regenerate this squad over the next three or four windows is amongst the toughest of any kind of recruitment team in the country just because like you've got Josh Brownhill in midfield Dwight McNeil and that's pretty much it and then the next youngest player is Charlie Taylor who's 26 like that is that is such a big challenge but I mean, Dyche so when you say you out. love it, do you mean you love it just because it's a bit of an outlier and a bit of a quirk? Because I, I mean, it, from what you've said there, I, I'm kind of concerned. It certainly feels like there there might be trouble on the horizon here, especially if, God forbid, Sean Dyche <laughs> ever left the club. Would we not be quite concerned that this squad is just so Dycean? It, it's not even silly, and and therefore, were he to leave, that they might be in a, a spot of bother. I definitely think that's that's the truth here, and I. I do. I definitely do kind of like worry for this team longer term because there just doesn't seem to be an eye on the future and how you actually maintain Burnley's a Premier League power. Um, and yeah, Dyche again is a is a fantastic manager to get out of this squad what he does. And every single year the bookies say that Burnley are going to finish on a, on a certain number of points. And every single year, seemingly he gets three or four more than that. And that is just a, a skill that that is worth millions in, in in the Premier League. But yes, it 
again, they've not signed anyone this season. I think they've signed a, a goalkeeper in the summer. And yeah, it just, it does seem like a very big uphill battle for Burnley, similar with, with Palace as well. This podcast is brought to you by Hymns. If you haven't heard of them, they're basically your best mate when it comes to those tricky men's health problems. Balding is an awkward topic for men, yet a lot of us start to lose our hair before we hit 40. And the best way to take control of hair loss is to do something about it while you still have some. Hims was created to make it easier for guys to seek care, especially guys who avoid seeing their doctor in person for awkward health issues. So Hims connects you to real doctors online, which could save you hours. It's completely confidential and discreet. You'll get a proper consultation and they'll give you sound advice on what you can do to help your hair before it's too late. It couldn't be easier for you to book your free consultation. Just go to forhims.co.uk slash athletic. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S forward slash athletic. I always find it interesting how teams take a different approach to things. You cannot argue with the results that, that Sean Dyche and Burnley have had with this approach at just staying in the Premier League and, and and sustaining themselves for so long. But then you look at a team like Brighton, who anecdotally I've heard have a, a pretty similar playing budget uh, and certainly have done in the last few years and they, they take a very different approach. Michael, you were quite keen to talk about Brighton and, and, uh, and what they've got going on in their squad. They've been, well... They've been they've had a remarkable transfer record since promotion to the Premier League. I think they've bought players from 15 different nations, not all of them for for, for first team football. They have quite a large sort of uh, development squad as well. Uh, what stands out to you with uh, with Brighton's approach? Yeah, it's quite a mixed bag as as you say. I mean, I think the interesting thing with with Brighton is they've got a few players of of peak age as as Thomas categorized it who I feel like probably haven't peaked, certainly not in terms of their their form with Brighton. I mean, an example of that is Yakambash, who's, who's 27 at the moment. I still think of him as a player who's got room to develop and should become a good player. But maybe you you look at his age and you wonder whether that's still true. Bernardo, who on his day is a very good left back, is a uh, another example of that. So yeah, I mean, it's a relatively young side. The only one they've they've really got this above the peak age is Lalana, who's obviously only just come in. And uh, I must say, I was a little bit surprised about. That signing, but I think it makes more sense now that Aaron Moore has departed. But yeah, otherwise it's a, a pretty young squad and a couple of players who've come in recently who I think look really interesting. Uh, ben White, we know at centre-back, is a really good player. And Lamperty, uh, right-back, whenever I see him play. I mean, against Chelsea, I think he was excellent. And Alzate as well, kind of very unusual player, kind of homegrown Englishman who's now a Colombian international. So yeah, it's just a, a fun squad on the pitch and I think quite a fun squad to look at on paper as well. As I alluded to, just the, the places where they recruit their players uh, from is, is so diverse uh, and, and not always buying them, of course. Lewis Dunk came out of the academy. Uh, Connolly and Ben White, who you referenced there, they were both bought at 16 years old on scholarships. Al Zapp picked up from Leighton Orient, uh, who were in League Two at the time when he was 18 and Solly March at, at 17 from Lewis in, in non-league and Lamptey, of course, before he even started a, a senior league game. So it feels like Tom, we've hit uh, upon probably one of the more interesting teams in in the Premier League by studying squad depth across the division. Yeah, for sure. I think that the biggest outlier for me on on Brighton, like you say, they've they've recruited from tons of different leagues and teams and and kind of divisions. But one for me, Ali, and I'm I'm sure you'll agree, maybe you didn't see coming, it's Dan Byrne. Um, Dan Byrne, if someone was to kind of ask me what position Dan Byrne was before I watched him play, the last one I would probably say is left back. And I saw him briefly at Fulham, I think it was probably around 16, 17, when I think the team still had kind of Ross McCormack up front and Moussa Dembele as well, obviously, who's now at uh, Celtic. Um, and this, the amount of stick that Dan Byrne would get from the fans back then was just, it was outrageous. And he obviously just, people watching the, you know, at the game at that point, just didn't think he was good enough for that level. And yet now he's he's a starting left-back for Brighton. That, for me, is just... It's either ingenious work in the transfer market to find see something in Dan Byrne that makes him think, yeah, this guy's a Premier League-level left-back. Um, or it's just, you know, pure randomness and, and, and just one of those things that happens in the sport times of time. And next on our whistle-stop tour, uh, a team with the oldest manager in the whole of English football uh, and a pretty old squad as well in Crystal Palace, Although, Tom, they have been making some moves this summer to uh, reduce the average age of the squad. Yeah, Palace, for me, are, are kind of the team, along with, like I just said, 
previously, Burnley, who I think definitely need to make some moves to regenerate youth and this squad. And yeah, I think that if you look at centre-back, they've got Gary Cahill, who's 34, Scott Dan, who's 33, James Tompkins, who is 31. The youngest player they have at centre-back is, is Yara Riedewald, who joined with um, when De Boer was manager, and he's he's 24. And from speaking to the Palace correspondent, Matt Woosnam, it just seems like the the, uh, the team just really don't rate Riedewald as a centre-back, and he might play, you know, more fullback or central midfield minutes. So straight away, this that's just one area, and it's pretty much the same across the entire squad. But I think with with the signing of, of Eze and, and Nathan Ferguson from from West Brom, who is kind of in the the Wambasaka mould, that he's a he's a kind of defence first fullback. And Michi Batshuayi, they're at least making some strides to prepare the team longer term for kind of the manager after Roy Hodgson this season, which definitely seems like the the right approach. Michael, it feels to me like with the increased introduction in, in football analytics and decision-making within clubs uh, over the last, well, let's say decade or half decade, that uh, certainly in recruitment, there's been a bit of a skew towards signing younger players with resale value. But we're talking about old the older squads here, Burnley and Crystal Palace. When you see these old squads, do are you concerned about that or do you think that almost you know it goes so far one way that for other clubs it could be the right way to go and they can almost exploit uh, a gap that's been created in the market yeah it's an interesting question i mean for me the interesting thing that that is happening here is you know tom's identified burnley and crystal palace as the two sides who are the oldest pretty much i mean they're probably close to being the two sides who are the most traditional in the way they play as well so there does seem to be something that goes hand in hand with you know someone like Bielsa is very forward thinking in terms of his tactics and also you know quite forward thinking in terms of the age of the players he uses and it reminds me of something that Sam Allardyce said a, a few years ago where he was talking about why he uses experienced players and he said that one of the the valuable things about buying a player who's 31 or 32 is that the manager and the coaching staff have so much data on the player going back 10 years they basically know exactly what the player is going to do. And I thought that was an interesting way to frame experience. Usually I think of it as, okay, the player knows what he's going to do. But Allardyce was saying, you know, there's another way of looking at it. If you're a manager and you're quite traditional and you want a solid job from a player, then yeah, maybe a 32-year-old is what you want. I think that's definitely good to get, you know, one or two years out of a certain player and maybe ties you over with with you know Premier League experience which managers definitely seem to to value very very highly but I think that's a, a good strategy that keeps you in the league kind of year on year and maybe doesn't they don't pull any surprises by doing that but I think the teams that now have couldn't really really pushed on and found a a kind of template or a model in the transfer market that they can use repeatedly to find success and maybe turn a, a 13th place finish to a 10th place finish is to kind of find guys who are you're not just using them for a year and kind of burning the money on, on, on the wages and that being the end of it. I think they're looking for, for resale or someone who can um, increase their quality over time. So, yeah, it's it, there's there's different incentives for people working at clubs on, on the length of time that they're they're caring about looking after a squad for. And I definitely think that's reflected in, in certain teams and the moves they make in the transfer market. Tom, I want you to walk me through a couple of clubs who take the tight approach with thin, small squads. Who are the who are the, the sort of leading contenders in, in that sense in the Premier League? Wolves are definitely one. And you can see that I think last season they only used 21 players in the league all in. The squad so far this season, they have they have 20 players. And yeah, they, they seemingly just, you know, every single player in that squad has a role. They're going to get five, 600 minutes in the league, depending on, on when they joined. And yeah, they, they just know the system inside and out. And it probably makes life a little bit easier for Nuno Espirito Santo, just you're not having to manage as many expectations of, of players because they all know at some point they're, they're going to be playing in games across three or four different competitions. So um, Wolves are definitely a small squad. Burnley as well, as we mentioned before, they only have 18 players, um, which given the kind of schedule of the season with with, with the pandemic and, and how teams are maybe going to be playing, you know, three times a week at certain stages, that just seems slightly suicidal given the age profile of the squad as well. And then West Ham for me as well were, were relatively small. So they've got 21 players. Um, they've only got three centre-backs in Angelo Bonner, Fabio Balbuena and Issa Diop. Um, and that, uh, that's that been something of, of speaking to Rashane Thomas, who's our West Ham correspondent. It's an area that West Ham have just really failed to invest in. And looking at their, their squad on paper, you, you see that you've got the likes of Yarmolenko, Anderson, Lanzini, Fornals, Haller up front. Uh, and then at the back, you've kind of got Cresswell, who was bought from, from Ipswich years ago, Ryan Fredericks is a free transfer. Arthur Masuaku bought a few seasons ago. He's probably one of the the very few kind of investments at the back. And then Ben Johnson, who's 
he's from the academy and the centre backs previously. So again, it's there's an element of, of of building a squad where you've got an eye on the age, but it's also making sure that it's it's relatively balanced and it's it's fixture proof to some extent. And I do think that this season will really really test some teams and whether they've actually built their squad adequately. Okay, those are small squads. Now for a few more bloated ones. Uh, we've already touched on Arsenal, who have a very large squad, but London rivals Chelsea as well. Tom, they've got. Uh, quite a few names on there it's fair to say yeah um Chelsea are definitely stacked with talent and and this is just the squad for the first team obviously where we're completely forgetting about the the lone army that um Frank Lampard has, has hidden away somewhere at the Cobham training ground yeah but I, I think this is such a test for Lampard because this season because like he's got a lot of depth in the squad and there's a lot of players that do offer um slightly different things in, in different positions and it will really kind of test him in certain games like can he work out which players he has who are the best ones for, for that game and I, I wrote a piece of Liam who's our Chelsea correspondent recently about kind of the different ways that, that Chelsea can line up and use these players in certain game situations um, because they've got a squad which with £200 million in investment it's good for the next few years and they just need, a, need to ensure they have a manager at the helm who can eke out you know every bit of quality and, and make sure they're winning more games than they were beforehand this season and Michael, Manchester United fans can probably feel fairly confident that uh, at the very least they've got plenty of options uh, in terms of bodies across the park. Do you think it's a, a squad with enough quality in it as well as depth? Yeah, I, I wouldn't be too concerned on that front. I mean, with Manchester United, I feel a little bit the same way I do about Brighton. In the sense they've got a lot of players in supposed peak ages who I still think of in their footballing development as more like 23 or 24 rather than 26 or 27. The obvious example of that is, is Jesse Lingard, who I think obviously his form has, has dipped quite significantly the last couple of years. Fred as well, you still think of him as someone who wants, you know, needs to develop into a good player. He's 27 already. Lindelof, I think, has talent, defends like he's still got a lot of learning to do and he's 26. And even with players like Bailly, with Maguire, you know, they've got a few players there who just feel should be 10 or 20% better than, than they are at the moment. Um, but yeah, in terms of the squad overall, it's, it's not particularly old. Really the only player, the only outfield player who's above his peak age is Matic, who kind of um, re-established himself towards the back end of last season. But I wouldn't be surprised if Solskjaer tried to move on from him, whether it's Fred or McTominay or, you know, depending on this, upon the system with Van der Beek coming in. But yeah, I think in terms of the squad, United are looking fairly strong. I think they probably need one or two more first teamers, I'd say, um, to really take the level of the first 11 up rather than necessarily the squad, which I think is relatively well equipped. I agree with a lot of what Michael said there, but my my biggest takeaway from looking at the Man United chart was that Phil Jones is only a year older than Harry Maguire, which to me just feels wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And Jesse Lingard, the same age as Harry Maguire? Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's correct. Lingard, Unbelievable. Lingard's always the the kind of old school shout for like always think he's younger than he actually is. It, but maybe in the same same kind of bracket as Lucas Vasquez at Real Madrid, who I consistently think is like twenty four years old and about to get his first national team cap. And I think he's I think he's twenty eight now. But there's a there's probably a whole podcast in itself of players who we think are one age, but they're actually another. <laughs> Lingard is twenty seven until he's twenty eight. Don't forget that. Uh, uh, look. Yes. When we look down at all these charts and the squad depth ac- across the league, there are there are teams who you can tell have taken a sort of mid to long term approach to squad building, and many of them sort of get plaudits for that and ending up with a squad that looks well balanced and well stocked, not too big and not too small, but with enough quality. Uh, Everton are quite an interesting case study here because they are absolutely stacked. I think potentially twenty eight players in their squad. But they feel like one where you sort of look at it and it's almost like a failure of recruitment and of level-headed thinking because it's kind of a reflection of how many different managers they've had in the last few years and how each different manager seems to want different things. Where do you stand on, on Everton, Tom? Yeah, I very much agree with you there, Ali. There's, it always feels Everton that they're, they're kind of, you know, they're just two windows away from bringing a couple of players in, shifting the deadwood, and they're, you know, they'll really be able to compete. And then two windows later, it's just this exactly the same problem. And I think looking at the squad here, I mean, you've got Theo Walcott, who definitely is a, a useful Premier League player on his day, but he, you know, he's 31 now and shouldn't be being relied on as such. Gilfie Sigurdsson again was, I think he's in my mind, one of the biggest failings in the transfer window in recent seasons, just because it was so, 
easy to see that that on paper was going to going to fail um it's obviously easy to say that in a podcast in 2020 when the move happened in i think 2017 2018 but even then like he, he was someone who a lot of his contributions to creating goal scoring chances came from set pieces and Everton weren't necessarily a you know they had Leighton Baines who really had a good set piece taker at the time and it just feels that there are a few other players um like I mean Yannick Velassi is still in the squad I can't imagine he's gonna um add too much in terms of minutes this season same with Cenk Tosin like yeah there are definitely fingerprints of players who were as you say part of previous managers plans and it definitely shoots Everton in the foot in the long run. But I don't know. I'm hopeful that, that Alan and, and Ducore and James Rodriguez look really, really exciting at Spurs. I'm hopeful that kind of maybe that's that's past them. But it could be that we're on this podcast in a year's time and I'm saying exactly the same things. Well, I think what you, what you can say with, with certainty is that there's a lot of wasted money going on wages for players who are not going to be contributing to Everton Football Club on the pitch this season. And, uh, and that is kind of a consequence of all this chopping and changing, I dare say, even though they do have plenty of, of quality and plenty to, to be excited about as well. Um, Michael, the, the favourites for the title this season were, were Manchester City. They're expected to improve on what was a really disappointing uh, effort last season. Uh, how do you think their squad shapes up? They're obviously a, a side that more or less can, can buy whoever they want within reason. Uh, how's Pep's squad shaping up? Yeah, I mean, there's a few players there who are probably older than their peak age. I mean, Aguero now is 32, Carl Walker's 30. Not sure how much he'll play this season. The likes of Gundogan, uh, Mahrez, De Bruyne, all 29. So yeah, it's maybe a, a slightly older squad than you might expect. They've got some good young players coming through, of course, particularly Phil Foden. But, you know, Guardiola, I think, is... On one hand, he's a bit of a Bielsa figure in that he wants to work with young players and bring them on and make them into the players that he wants them to be. But on the other hand, he's, you know, he's never really stuck around long at a club. This is obviously the longest stint he's ever had. And I don't think he's really a kind of Arsene Wenger figure who wants to focus on having the same group of players in seven or eight years because I think he knows he won't be at the club at that point. So, yeah, it's an interesting squad. I mean, they've they've got good depth in most positions. I think Guardiola is on record as saying he doesn't like too big a squad because he thinks it becomes a problem where there's basically more players left out than are playing because you end up with a bit of an unhappy squad. So he's usually quite willing to take a bit of a chance at centre-back um, this season, it does appear he's actually going to have five centre-backs now that Ake's come in, if Garcia stays around, that is. Um, so, yeah, I can't really see any major problems with uh, City's squad, with maybe the slight exception of up front, where, you know, Aguero tends to have some injury problems, so they'd be left just with Jesus. But, uh, yeah, maybe Sterling can play up front, or uh, or even De Bruyne has played there in the past, so it probably won't be too much of an issue. Tom, I want you to talk me through the other two promoted clubs. We, we've discussed Leeds United's quirks of squad building and depth under Marcelo Bielsa. What about West Brom and Fulham? Because it can be uh, it can be kind of confusing for, for, for new clubs coming up into the Premier League. Do you stick with the guys that got you promoted? Do you have to add a ton of quality to cope with the step up in league quality? Uh, how have... Baggies and, and Fulham approach this one. West Brom's an interesting case because it doesn't seem like they've actually invested too much this season and they did a lot of their shopping kind of last year. Pereira, who's the kind of exciting attacking midfielder, joined permanently from Sporting Lisbon. But again, he he kind of proved himself in the championship and, and they, they're going to put their trust in him this year to see if he can kind of repay that uh, in the Premier League. Same with Grady Diangana, who I think is uh, a great signing and obviously one that um, for West Ham fans and West Ham players even was... Uh, you know, source of a fair amount of dismay. But yeah, I'm intrigued to see how the likes of Kieran Gibbs get on. Ahmed Hegazi, if he plays in the Premier League, Carl Bartley. Like there's a lot of players who who have Premier League experience at some point previously. Uh, and yeah, I'm definitely intrigued to see kind of how Slum Village pieces those those together or if it's just a bridge too far and the gap between championship quality and Premier League quality for this squad is 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 just a bit too much. Hi there, I'm David Ornstein, host of the Athletics Ornstein and Chapman podcast. And I'm here to tell you about Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job, so you can be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. 
Their third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents and the water resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. And we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off and free shipping by using the code EPL20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving. And you can also listen to me on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast. It's myself, Mark Chapman, and the Athletics stable of expert writers, bringing you unrivaled insight into the biggest stories in the game every single week. Definitely something we've seen more and more at championship level is while there are still clubs, notably those who have parachute payments, who will spend, you know, £10 million or more on individual players, it feels like those instances are decreasing. What we have seen more in the last few years are the sort of loan with an obligation to buy if promoted. You can sort of see why clubs do that to almost save themselves the cost uh, which can go towards, uh, you know, which can hurt them in FFP terms if they don't get promoted. But yeah, it has been interesting, uh, interesting with West Brom and Fulham uh, and leads to an extent with Helder Costa where they've actually ended up having to buy players for pretty hefty sums of money, you know, a decent chunk of their Premier League TV money. Uh, and in some cases, like with Knockart and, and not so much Helder Costa, who's a good contributor for them, but certainly with Anthony Knockart for Fulham and, and even Cavalero as well, uh, maybe the sorts of guys that you wouldn't otherwise be spending 10 to 15 million quid on uh, after promotion to the Premier League. So it's kind of, yeah, it's quite an interesting situation that uh, and one to keep an eye on for, for future promoted clubs. Yeah, with Fulham as well, it seems that they're very much a case of just giving guys a second chance. I mean, Den- Dennis Adoy started uh, against Arsenal. Stefan Johansson is back in the squad now, says so Kevin McDonald, and they were kind of cast aside really when they were initially promoted to the Premier League um, in favour of um, Frank Zambo and Gisa and, and John Mikel Seri who have kind of I kind of deem this on Twitter as like those two guys who come out with you for like really big nights out but then disappear and you never see otherwise and, and they're very much the same this year they, they went out on loan they went out on loan last season and then they've come back just for the, the big party again in the Premier League so whether they can actually contribute this season is another story but I think Fulham, again, there's, there's not a huge change um, in the squad. I think the biggest worry for me really is, is Tim Ream at centre-back. And kind of, he wasn't at the level last time during the league. I still don't feel he's improved. He's 32. He's, he's way past his peak. The next option at the back is, is Max Le Marchand. And then after that, they don't have anyone else. So I, I wonder if Fulham nip back into the market before the start of October when the, the window closes for a, a, an option or two there. Michael, it's taken us all this time to get on to Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, does this feel like a Jose Mourinho type squad to you based on your knowledge of, of previous Mourinho squads? Yeah, it's a funny one. I remember actually the first time I, I really saw a graph roughly like the ones we're talking about was a few years ago when I was so impressed with how young Tottenham's squad was. It felt like everyone, with the exception of Vertonghen and Order of World, was, was under 25. I expected to look at this and, and remark on how old Tottenham's squad was, but Vertonghen's left. Order of World doesn't seem to be an automatic first choice anymore. And actually, they've got a lot of players still in the peak ages. So this is probably a better squad for the long term than I thought. I thought this felt like a kind of yeah a group of players on its last legs kind of you know the end of Pochettino is probably the end of the era for this squad but actually they're looking in decent shape there's a couple more positions that they need to nail down I mean Kane remains the only proper centre forward there personally I don't think that Son is a bad option as, as the backup number nine he's a very different type of player but I think if he plays up there with Gareth Bale out wide they'll be in uh, decent shape so yeah it's uh, interesting looking at Tottenham I think they're probably in better shape than I had previously thought. Newcastle United are an interesting one, Tom, because uh, their their recruitment has sort of taken on different shapes in in different seasons, it's fair to say. You've got last summer's additions of Joe Linton, Sam Maxima and Almiron. This summer, they've gone with a a British trio of signings, Callum Wilson, Ryan Fraser, Jamal Lewis. Uh, When the dust has settled on those signings and you look at the squad that Steve Bruce has at his disposal, how does it make you feel? I feel largely positive about Newcastle just because they do have a lot of, again, on paper, decent attacking pieces. It's just whether Bruce can find a system that accommodates them and gets gets the most out of them. I did a piece with, with Chris Woff, who's our Newcastle writer, just before the league restarted and essentially said, I worry a bit for Newcastle because Martin Dubravka had to stand on his head at times last year and, and, and had a really, really great season. But apart from that, they weren't really getting a lot out of, of Miguel Almiron. Um, him and Alan Simaxman 
while great to watch, they pick up the ball so deep and they have so far to run with it that by the time they actually reach the final third, they're both knackered. So I think that it's important for, for Bruce and Newcastle to find a system that, that means they're actually, you know, they're attacking more and better with his players. But yeah, I don't know. Probably like Michael, I was really, really happy to see them stick with a very traditional 4-4-2 against West Ham on the uh, opening day of the season. I'm just absolutely astonished by the phrase, stand on his head, which I've never, ever heard before. And I've Googled it as you're talking. This is a term to describe an outstanding performance by an ice hockey goaltender in a short period of time. Look at you, Warville, coming over here with your with your graphics and your charts and your <laughs> ice hockey terminology. This, this will not stand. This will not stand at all on the ZM pod. Uh, Michael, talk me through Sheffield United because I guess the big question for them after such an amazing first season in the Premier League with the core of a squad, as discussed on a previous episode, that in, in many cases has, has been with them since League One days. Um, the next question is, how do we evolve? How do we build and establish ourselves further in the Premier League? And, uh, you know, you look to the transfer market, but it's it's a tough balance to find, isn't it? Because you don't want to disrupt what you already have. Uh, what does Chris Wilder have at his disposal? Yeah, it's an interesting squad. I must admit, I kind of didn't really have that much of an idea how old a lot of these players were. I kind of just expect every Sheffield United player to be 28 and have, you know, had five years championship experience and done really well in their first Premier League year. Um, actually, it's more of a mixed bag than that. I think the interesting thing is up front, which shows how... You know, when they were promoted this time last year, they did try to evolve the squad and, and become a bit younger because Sharp is now, Billy Sharp is now 34, McGoldrick is 32. The two players they brought in, Bernie and Musa, are 24. Um, Oliver Burke's just come in, who's 23. So there's been a big shift there. And also just the, the players that have come in this year. Ampadu is, what, 19, uh, only on loan, of course. But Lowe and Bogle are 23 and 20, respectively. Uh, Sander Berger's 22. So... There's been more of an effort than I thought. Ramsdale as well is 22. So there's been more of an effort than I thought from Chris Wilder to get in some players who are going to be there for the long term. And uh, yeah, hopefully, I say that as a, a neutral, but I really like them. Just hopefully establish Sheffield United as a long-term Premier League force. Right, we finish off with two Midlands clubs. Tom Warville, firstly to you on Aston Villa. Now, the team not in the Premier League that gets the most credit for planning and squad building and recruitment in English football is Brentford, of course. And there's a little whiff of Brentford to Aston Villa's recruitment over the last year or two. Dean Smith, of course, the manager, uh, indoctrinated by uh, a few years with the Bees. Uh, is it fair to say that there's a, there's a whiff of Brentford about this squad? Yeah, I think there's there's more of a whiff at times. There's probably a bit more of a stench at times because you've got <laughs> uh, evidence that Dean Smith spent, spent time at Brentford. When looking at his Villa squad, I mean, you've got Scott Hogan, former... Um, former Brentford player, Yotta, former Brentford player, Ollie Watkins just brought in. He played at, at Brentford as well. So there, there's some signs that obviously Dean Smith likes to buy players who he's played with before, he's, he's used before and he kind of trusts. But then also just the composition of the squad too, you have the only players who are above the age of 30 are um, Ahmed El-Mohamedi and, and Neil Taylor and the rest of Tom Heaton who's, or Neeland who are goalkeepers. So this team is definitely geared towards, you know, they're amongst the youngest sides in the league, both in terms of kind of squad composition uh, and age in terms of players that they have on the pitch as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of lot of hallmarks there of, of Brentford sides that we've seen in the past. Um, and, and yeah, I'd, I mean, I'd love to know from Dean Smith kind of what, what the rationale is behind that. Like, is there certain research he's been shown that, that you know, shows that this is a winning formula or is it just like every other manager, he has a philosophy that, that younger is better. Another side that likes buying young players and sometimes looks to the EFL for them is Leicester City, Michael. How much have they sort of shed their skin and evolved from that title winning season in 15-16? In what does their squad look like now? Yeah, I think that evolution has been really impressive actually. I think it's probably gone slightly under the radar. They kind of, yeah, evolved into a different type of club in terms of the players they were bringing in. I mean, someone like Harry Maguire, of course, came in after the title winning campaign and was sold for, what, off the top of my head, four times as, as much as they bought him for, something ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, looking at the squad, I think it's pretty positive. Certainly in terms of the age profiles, it's a relatively young squad. The exceptions to that, I think, you know, two of them, Schmeichel and Evans, are in positions where you tend to be able to go 
for a little bit longer because it's less about acceleration and constant sprinting. And then, you know, at the other end of the pitch is Jamie Vardy, who I guess is the outlier in this side and is maybe a kind of exception in terms of, you know, he's 33 now and I think he's come off his best ever campaign. So he seems to be kind of defying the age curve, um, perhaps partly because he started as a professional so late. I think he's probably able to go on a little bit more before his body has had enough. But I mean, even if Vardy's out, they can bring in uh, Iheanacho, who's 10 years younger, who I think has slightly struggled to show his best form at Leicester, having looked very promising at Manchester City. But I think on occasion last year, was very effective. I remember being at the uh, the victory over Everton they got when he scored a great last minute goal. I thought he was also probably the best player on the final day of the season in that game against Manchester United that they needed to win to get into the Champions League and, and they lost 2-0 in the end. But um, yeah, it, it, to me, it looks like a good squad and uh, and also a group of young players like Harvey Barnes and Chowdhury and Justin as well at fullback. They've got a lot of players who I think can evolve into better players over the next uh, couple of years. Last but definitely not least, Tom, because there, there are another team who make a lot of money in the transfer market, who seem to display a lot of joined up thinking when it comes to squad building and uh, and a long-term view. Southampton, uh, of course. What do you make of, of what they've got to work with this year? Yeah, so Southampton, again, are a side that have very kind of uh, light squad. They've only got 22 players. And it just feels that with the kind of high-octane way that Ralph Hassan likes to press and, and play, Football, it just feels like that is that going to work in the long term. I mean, it definitely worked this season and it wasn't a problem. And I don't think they had many kind of longer term injuries. So maybe it's it's a case that the squad is just really, really well conditioned and there's a lot of attention paid to recovery such that they can get by with a, a relatively thin squad like that. But I mean, they've lost um, Pierre-Emile Hoiberg in, in midfield to Spurs, who definitely is a, a kind of very energetic all-rounder there. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to see if Oreo Romeo, James Ward-Prowse and, and Will Smallbone can absolutely pick up the uh, the pieces there. Uh, Romeo seems to be the player that uh, will get more minutes there, but he's definitely a, a different profile to that of, of Hoiberg. So um, yeah, I... I like the squad. I think that they've done some smarter moves more recently, like with Mohamed Salah at the back, I think could be, you know, verging on a 20 to 30 million pound player if he gets a good run of minutes and plays well. And I think we spoke about this in the previous podcast because he is left footed and and clubs are starting to value that more in the market. So, um, yeah, uh, I really enjoy watching Southampton. I think that they've started to right the wrongs that they've had in the transfer window of of kind of the last couple of seasons. Lovely back ref to a a former episode, last week's episode, which was on left-footed centre-backs. We've got quite the back catalogue now, I think it's fair to say. So if you're new to the pod, if you're a new subscriber or a new listener, uh, a lot of what we do, I think, sort of, is, is, is ageless, is timeless. You can go back and listen. So please do have a little search back through the podcast feed and uh, and pick a topic that tickles your fancy. I got a tweet from someone the other day who was listening to our podcast on the Makalele roll, for example. So um, they, they age well and I implore you to, to give it a go. Uh, this is the end of this week's episode where we've gone in-depth into Premier League squad depth. We had Peak Warville talking about peak age uh, and some Peak Cox as well, who was uh, discussing Kievo players from five years ago as well. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed. Remember that you can listen to it ad free if you're a subscriber of The Athletic. That's also where you can read all of Tom Warville and Michael Cox's excellent bits of work. Theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking will see you get a subscription for just one pound a month. So do check that out today thank you for tuning in join us next week on the zonal marking podcast brought to you by the athletic (laughs) 